Hello everyone, my name is Vaishali Sood and I'm the health editor with thequint.com and the editor for fit.thequint.com. As India is set to enter lockdown 4.0, there are many questions swirling around what is exactly India's exit plan vis-a-vis lockdowns. I got an opportunity to sit down for a conversation with Dr. K. Srinath Reddy. He is the President of Public Health Foundation of India and the Adjunct Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard University. It was a really engaging conversation. Do listen in. At the most conservative estimate, the peak is at least two to three months away. So I wanted to ask you, knowing what we do now, what should be India's exit uh, plan? Uh, vis-a-vis the lockdowns that we have right now? Uh, The purpose of the lockdown was to slow down the transmission of the virus. And secondly, also to give ourselves time to build up stronger health system response as well as a sturdier social response. To some extent, we have achieved this. And it's time now for us to move into the next phase where we continue a large number of personal protection measures as well as public health measures in order to continue to slow down the transmission, but with resumption of economic and social activities as appropriate to each region of the country or each district of the country. A health minister recently said in an interview that community infection in that in the sense community spread in India has not happened and India's robust contact tracing measures have prevented community spread from happening. Is that true also of areas like Mumbai and parts of Gujarat where the infection rate is that much more? Well, they're describing it as local transmission because they're saying that it is coming in from foreign travelers to their contacts and contacts to the secondary contacts and so on and so forth. And as long as they're able to identify the contacts and trace the chain of transmission in those regions, they feel it's local transmission. But we should not fight shy as a nation of facing the prospect of community transmission. Because every single country has gone through at some stage or other, some level of community transmission. So the virus is going to stay with us. It's it's not in a permanent lockdown in terms of it's not been either imprisoned or not exorcised from our country and planet. So we have to make sure that the transmission continues to be very slow so that we do not have too many people suffering serious consequences. We protect the most vulnerable while resuming our economic and social activities. At the same time, till a possible protective measure like a vaccine arrives so that we can have much greater uh, mass protection. But I think uh, the fact that community transmission is something that will be almost inevitable is something that we must all recognize and proceed with that. I do want to ask, the most conservative estimates also predict uh, the numbers to be between 1.3 to 134 million uh, people at the peak. Uh, How does herd immunity work and is that even a logical public health strategy for a country like India? I know herd immunity has been discussed quite a lot, but unfortunately there's a lot of misunderstanding about what herd immunity is. Firstly, herd immunity depends partly on what is called the R0 or R0 or RO, whatever you want to call it, 
the R naught essentially tells how many people a person can infect. And the more the R naught, the greater the herd immunity threshold, the number of people who need to be infected. If you take polio on smallpox, the R naught was between five to seven, and the herd immunity threshold was 80 to 85% of the population had to be infected if you had to get herd immunity. Right. Obviously, being a pretty severe disease, it has taken 100 years for us to achieve that, not through acquired immunity through infection, but through vaccines, right? Yeah. So that's how herd immunity was achieved. In terms of Ebola and influenza, the R0 was between one and two. There, the herd immunity threshold is 30 to 50%. Now, for the COVID-19 virus, the R0 is somewhere in between around three or so when it started off. So we are saying that the herd immunity threshold could be 60 70%. But even there, there are some issues that need to be decided. Firstly, it is herd protection, not herd immunity. Because let us say people in Delhi, 60 to 70% are infected and they develop that kind of herd immunity. But suppose a person from Delhi travels to Ranchi or Raipur, where the infection rate only has been 20% or 30%. That herd has no immunity to confer to the visiting person. So this person from Delhi is still vulnerable. So it is the herd that has actually the protection characteristics if it is stable, but not the uh, unprotected individuals of the herd if they travel to another herd. But equally importantly, let me come up with other issues as well related to this. Firstly, we do not know whether these antibodies that we are developing, what levels they have to be at to confer immunity what duration that in, in, immunity will last, because we know influenza virus immunity doesn't last long. And we, we have a number of questions to be answered also, whether we also require something called cell-mediated immunity or it's only the antibodies that are required. So with multiple questions hanging around the herd immunity level, for this particular virus, which is relatively new, I don't think we can place our bets on herd immunity to get us out of the, get us out of the trouble. Right. And so in the in the light of that, I mean, obviously, vaccine remains the answer. Uh, but, you know, at the most conservative estimates, the vaccine is at least a year, year and a half, two years away, if it comes at all. I mean, there was a there was a comment recently uh, by a very senior public health expert at WHO saying there's a very real possibility that the vaccine may not come at all. Uh, so I wanted to get your sense of uh, our vaccine development and, you know, are we betting too much on it? Well, uh, I think people are optimistic because there are multiple candidates and then some of the people in Oxford who have been working with coronaviruses, not this virus, but other viruses beforehand, feel fairly confident that by September they'll have a winner. But till the actual results come out, both in terms of efficacy and safety, we can never be 100% sure. And we ought to wait and see whether within one, one and a half years we'll have a vaccine which is not only safe and effective, but also being produced at a level that is available to everybody in the world. So till that time, we have to have all our protective measures. And even if the virus, meanwhile, spreads slowly, as it will, it is possible that we may even get acquired immunity at higher levels in our population. And somewhere along the way, the virus can mutate to a less virulent form. There's a fact of evolutionary biology that we must actually publicize which is not very much discussed. That is, a virus 
which can actually travel through a large animal population or subsequently through a very large human population with great speed has a tendency to mutate to more virulent forms because it has no host to exhaust. On the other hand, if it finds a very limited host and it is not able to spread easily, it tends to mutate to a less virulent form because it is evolutionary biology that it itself has to survive to propagate. So in that sense, by continued social or physical distancing and observing all the protective measures, putting as many obstacles as possible in the road of the virus for transmission, we may actually see whether a vaccine comes or not, or whether herd immunity fully develops or not, that the virus may actually grow less virulent. So we'll have to do everything in our power. The virus will have a transmission. There's no doubt about it. But let us make it a bumpy road for it. Let's not create a highway for it. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you spoke about healthcare systems and the purpose of lockdowns is to improve your healthcare systems. But, you know, I mean, you hear about horror stories about the quarantine centers that are in place, you know, people running away out of fear. There was that video from Cyan Hospital in Mumbai where the bodies were lying next to the patients who were being treated. I mean, given, given this kind of a scenario, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you, we keep saying we have adequate beds and we have adequate uh, ICUs and adequate, adequate ventilators. But do you, in your, uh, I want to get your sense on how realistically are healthcare systems prepared? Well, we must accept a reality, however harsh it is. A healthcare system has to be functioning very well in the steady state for it to very quickly build a surge capacity. If you have neglected your healthcare system, and by that I mean both the public health system as well as the healthcare delivery system, for quite some time, for several decades now, with very low levels of physical financing, very low levels of health workforce buildup, apart from the question of equipment and so on, then you cannot suddenly build a surge capacity. Still, they're doing their job to the extent possible. But again, a little bit of imagination and empathy will help. There are, as I said, so many vacant buildings, unsold buildings which the builders have abandoned. Why not take them over, develop them into quick uh, quarantine centers which are much better facilitated? When you say exit plans for hospitals, now most of the a lot of hospitals have been turned into COVID hospitals. Even those who are not COVID hospitals have, you know, triage areas and areas set up for COVID. And a lot of other patients, you know, patients with other diseases are suffering. They're not able to get the access they need to healthcare that they need urgently. So given this scenario, even for hospitals, and you know, and we know for a fact that healthcare workers are most at risk of the virus, what should be our exit plan vis-a-vis? the healthcare uh, settings? Well, firstly, I think we also have learned a lesson that unless we have a fairly strong health system, we will be only dealing with emergencies like the COVID and neglect all other health priorities. Now we are seeing maternal and child health and non-communicable diseases, mental health, all of them, including some of the important life-saving chemotherapy as well as cardiac care being relatively neglected because everybody is focused on COVID right now because that is the public health emergency at hand. So which is a lesson that both in terms of public health as well as in terms of health care, you need a strong functioning health system in the steady state. But the second lesson is that 
85% of the people are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Everybody need not have been rushed to hospitals. Most of them can be taken care of at home or intermediate stations. And now that strategy is changing so that the pressure on hospitals can be relieved and they can take care of other patients too. So I think that re-strategization is important because now we realize it is not as severe for everybody. In fact, for the majority, it's not severe at all. So we might as well treat them at home or in low-intensity facilities. But I think going forward, it's a lesson for us that we must build a much stronger health system. But even in terms of solid, uh, for example, uh, looking at uh, surveillance systems, uh, there are need for what are called syndromic surveillance, where household visits can be made by frontline health workers and community health volunteers to find out whether somebody is having an influenza-like illness. They can be isolated and managed at home unless they become serious. And if necessary, a medical team can go home and test. Now, even saliva testing, which is a simpler method, is also being advocated. So there are various ways in which we can have the community participation and primary healthcare strengthened. What we need is what I would call people-partnered public health. You cannot only depend on ventilators because 80 to 90% of the people on ventilators, unfortunately, will not live. And mostly we are now recognized from clinical evidence that they're not really useful or not even appropriate in several cases. So we must actually quickly build upon these lessons to create a much stronger and durable health system. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quince website and check out our other podcasts. 